Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, if you aren't from here, if you're home from somewhere far away, if you're visiting, it's good to have you here. Uh, my name is Matt Smith, and um, my name doesn't always echo like that when I say that. That was kind of weird. Um, I'm the young adult pastor here at Antioch, and today really has nothing to do with young adults. It kind of has to do with all of us. One of the things that I'm going to be taking over here at Antioch is the, the missions um, Every, everything missionally minded, everything that has to do with justice, it has to do with peace, it has to do with development, it has to do with going around the world, it has to do with going into the supermarket down the street, that has to go with anything that has to do with going and kind of representing Christ. Anything that has to do with trying to put back together what has been broken, that has been destroyed, that has been fractured. Um, I really care about justice. It's a weird thing care about. And today is kind of why. Why I care. Um, why my whole life got turned upside down. Why I ended up quitting my job that I loved very much, leaving people that I admired very much and, and going somewhere that I never wanted to go, somewhere that I never knew existed, and the things that happened because of that. So if you want to know why I'm here, why I live in Bend, Oregon, why this is home for me, why Antioch is where I'm giving my life, why I'm studying international development at grad school, why I'm doing everything I'm doing, this is, this is why. It comes down to one word, ready? Christmas. What does Christmas have to do with justice? So I hope it's cool with you guys today that we started talking about Christmas. It's still November, but I mean, there's no denying it, right? It's, it's here, it's happened. Um, it's everywhere. Um, I know half of you were up at 3 a.m. on a Friday, so that's cool. You, you might feel bad by the time this is over. You might not. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to take it that way. Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Luke today. We're going to start in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And before we get there, I want to tell you guys two things. And these are the two things that really got lodged inside my head, and they've been there for about three years. Uh, the first thing came really casually in a conversation. You're just, you're just having a conversation with a friend. You don't want it to be super heavy. You're just talking. You're shooting the breeze. And she said something to me. And it was in February of like two and a half, almost three years ago, February, just after Christmas. She told me, Matt, uh, I learned something interesting this year. I said, well, I, I like interesting things. Please, please tell me the interesting thing. And uh, she said, well, I learned that just last year, a couple months ago, that uh, in the United States of America, and at that time there were roughly 300 million people, United States of America, 300 million people, we spent $450 billion on Christmas. You mean million with an M. I heard B. <laughs> no, no. B. Billion. $450 billion on Christmas. From Black Friday to Christmas Eve, consumer retail spending, $450 billion. So I kind of got stuck in my head, and I wanted to know more, I wanted to research. So I went online and I found this place called the National Retail um, Federation. It's this federation, they track consumer spending, they track trends, they make predictions, all this stuff. They're the people that every year, two, three months after Christmas, they put out a report. This is how much money we spent as, as Americans. And on average, they said that an American family spends $930. $930 on Christmas, just average. I mean, I look at that number, I'm like, <laughs> what? No way I ever got close to that. Some of you might look at that and think, man, that'd be a steal. If I got out of, out of December only spending $930, sign me up. I'll, I'll do that. 
Um, but on average, I mean, it's right there in the middle, $930 on average. And that number activated this, this memory. It took me back to college. My senior year, I took a, gla a class on globalization, which is just, you know, the world, the world is flat. There's McDonald's in Asia. There's McDonald's in Africa. Um, kids wear Michael Jordan jerseys in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Congo. Um, the world is well-connected. Information goes fast. Ideas travel fast. Culture is permeated. We can, we can literally, by this time tomorrow, we could be in, in the middle of India in a poor village. It's incredible how fast things move. So this globalization class, we studied poverty a lot. There's this organization called the World Bank. World Bank is a huge conglomerate of thing around the world. And they, they try to lend money to developing countries. They try to fight back on poverty with fiscal tactics. According to the World Bank, there are three billion people alive today. Three billion people who make two dollars or less a day. So imagine this. 2010 rolls around in about a month. You go to work every day. You don't take a single day off. 365 days. And somehow you manage not to spend a penny for a year. Three hundred and sixty-five dollars. Three hundred and sixty-five days times two dollars. You're gonna make seven hundred and thirty dollars in a year. This number and this number have been stuck in my head for three years. And I'm I'm right here in the middle. And I, I've sensed this chasm. This distance between a world where this is reality, where you have $730, not just for, for fun, not for a hobby, not for a trip, not for, not for a TV, but for essentials, for food, for water, for shelter, to clothe your family, to pay for school, $730 for all of that. $730 a year to survive. And over here, on this side, the world that I grew up in, super rich um, neighborhood south of Denver in the suburbs, $930 for one day, Christmas, tradition, extra income, going to debt for months, whatever it takes. $930 on this side, $730 on this side, and these are the two numbers that, that just started changing my life. I started learning, started asking questions, started talking to people started having conversations about poverty. I didn't even know what poverty really was. I'd spent some time in the Dominican Republic. I'd been to Costa Rica. I'd been to Bolivia. But these two things did not seem compatible. It didn't seem right that in a world both of these numbers could exist. It seemed like there was some sort of injustice. So I started sensing this, this distance. And here's the thing I want to start out with this morning. The distance between this kind of world, this kind of reality where we have the opportunity to spend money like this, to consume like this, versus a reality like this is not that far. The distance is not from here to Africa or here to India. The difference is not even from here to Portland or from here to Drake Park or Bond Street. It's not even from here to the parking lot of your car. And this is what I mean, uh, Luke 16. Jesus tells a story about two guys. He tells a story about a rich man who's insatiably rich. He's clothed in purple, which is a symbol for wealth. Purple was not an easy thing to come by in the time Jesus was alive. It was harvested from a, a very rare particular type of 
shellfish. How they found that out, I don't know. They did. They started making purple garments, and purple was a, a color of royalty, a color of wealth, a color of prestige. So there's this rich guy. This reality over here. It says he's got a huge house. There's huge gates to his house. It says that he eats these sumptuous feasts every day. The word in Greek there is gluttony. More than one man can stand, way beyond the measure that any one man should eat at any one time. Every day he feasts this way. And it talks about his house with these city gates, and it compares to the description of the entrance to a city. His house is so big, it looks like the gates to a rich emerald city. So this guy is wealthy. He's incredibly, insatiably wealthy, and he's happy, and he's fat. And Jesus says, on his doorstep is this guy who lives in this reality. His name is Lazarus. The only parable in the entire Bible that Jesus names the character. His name is Lazarus, which comes from the name Eleazar, which means God is my help. This guy Lazarus, God is his help because nobody knows he's there. He is poor. He is insufferably poor. And it's not just the material poverty. It says that his clothes have holes in it, that the dogs come and lick his wounds, that nobody will even notice him. So there's the material Lack. And that's how we think of poverty. It's a lacking. It's a deficit. There should be money here. There should be something here, and it's not. So that equals poverty. We have, we have a line for it. There's a line of poverty in the United States of America. There's a line of poverty around the world. $2 a day is the line. If you make more, you're above poverty. If you make less, you're below poverty. In the United States, if you're single, 2009, if you make $11,000, you're above the poverty line family of four, if you make more than $30,000, you're above it. So we have it, we measure it, we quantify it, and all those things. So Jesus says, Lazarus is there. He's starving, and he's sick, and he's poor, and he's dirty. And the interesting thing about me about the story that Jesus says is that Lazarus is not begging. He's not trying to go inside his house, the rich man's house. He's not trying to get anywhere. He's sitting there. And he says he's wishing. He's wishing for the scraps the leftovers of the rich man's food. He's wishing that the food that went to the dogs would go to him. Story goes on, they end up dying. The chasm is reversed. Now the rich man is suffering. Now the suffering man is with Abraham. The rich man looks across this great chasm. Jesus tells this story. He says, hey, Abraham, Tell that poor guy to come over here. Dip his finger in the water, cool my tongue, because this is hot. Doesn't even talk to him. Poor guy. To Abraham. Abraham's on, I'm sorry. Sorry, rich man, that's not how it works. While you were alive, you had your good things. You had your feast, you had your clothes, you had your palace. You enjoyed them. And Lazarus suffered. And now it's switched. And it can't be switched back. My question for you about this story, the question that got lodged in my brain that seeped down into my heart about this story is, who is the poor man? Who's the poor man in this parable? And I think maybe the answer is both. The answer is both. Poverty is physical. Poverty is lack to access. Poverty is no political power. Poverty is no voice. Poverty is no ability to make a change. Poverty is living in the dust and not being able to do anything about it. Poverty absolutely is physical. 
And Lazarus, what he did, and this is how poverty works, it's a circumstance that you internalize. It's a circumstance that you internalize. And he was poor. He was beyond poor. And he knew he was poor. And he started to believe he was poor. He started to believe he wasn't worth a meal. He wasn't worth new clothes. He wasn't worth anything except the scraps on a table. He was worth the value of a dog. So he internalizes that, begins to believe that, begins to live that out. And the God-given identity, the image to be productive, to, to go out, to, to fill the earth, to work, to labor, all those things that God has put inside of him are stripped. His identity in God is robbed. And that's one of the working definitions of poverty around the world. Marred identity. A marred identity. To lose your vocation. To lose your value. To believe that you're worth nothing. And there are three billion people around the world today living beneath the poverty line. And it's not just material. It's an internalized worthlessness. But over here on the other side, in this world that I grew up in, in this world that I know so well, the $930 for a tradition, for a celebration, it's been $120,000 on an undergraduate education. I know this world. And this world is just as impoverished as that world. The poverty of pride, the poverty of arrogance, the poverty of self-satisfaction. You know that's what complacency means? To be self-satisfied. That's the thing going on in this story that Jesus is saying. The rich man was complacent. He didn't even notice. He didn't tell Lazarus to come inside. He didn't offer him food. He didn't offer him a new coat. He didn't tell him to leave. He didn't even see him. He accepted him as part of the landscape. Like a park bench, like a stone, like a tree. It's just there can't even see him. So self-satisfied, so content, so convinced that his wealth was a result of his own righteousness. And that Lazarus's poverty was a result of his own unrighteousness. He couldn't even see him. Couldn't even connect. See, the line between rich and poor, um, without poverty and with poverty, is not from here to Africa. It's not from here to Drake Park. It's from here to here. It runs right down the middle of me. And it runs right down the middle of you. A material poverty, a physical poverty, a spiritual, mental poverty. The rich man internalized his circumstances. I am rich, therefore I must be good. Therefore, I am better than people that aren't rich. Therefore, I'm doing something right, and I'll continue to do it, and I will never notice this world that exists. That becomes the reality. So Jesus tells a story about poverty. It's physical, it's spiritual, it's mental. And the sin of complacency to be self-satisfied is not at the heart of the gospel. It's not at the heart of who God is. The loss of identity in a materially poor world looks a lot different than the loss of identity, identity in a materially rich world. We internalize our circumstances and we develop what a lot of people who work internationally with poor people call a God complex. 
a messianic complex. We think we have the tools, the ability, the power to transform people. We think we change lives. We think because we're here and born in and inherited this world in these circumstances, that something is more right with us than is with people who live in a mud hut in the middle of Eastern Congo. We internalize our circumstances and we sacrifice our identity, our worth, our value made in the image of God by putting ourselves above God. I'm not, I'm not accusing anyone in here of that, but I'm saying generally that's the cultural phenomenon. That's the cultural phenomenon that comes from prosperity, that comes from money, that comes from wealth. We can be just as poor and impoverished. We can be, our identity can be just as marred over here, standing in line at Walmart, about to spend $600 on Christmas gifts, as it can be for somebody over here who literally has 12 cents to their name. We can be just as far from God here and just as far from God here. The line runs right down the middle of us. Now, here's the cool thing. Philippians 2, 6 through 9. The Christmas story in Matthew is good. The, the version of it in Luke, I think, is better. I think this is the best place in the New Testament for the Christmas story. Paul's writing to the church, Philippi. He says, I want you to understand this about Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the Christmas story. Jesus, though he was God, though he is God, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul says that Christ, in Christ all things were created, all things are sustained, all things hold together. He is the power. He is the word. He is the voice that makes all of this possible. In John 1.14, it goes on, the word became flesh and what? It dwelt among us. The same word in the Old Testament, he tabernacled among us. He lived with us. He came to show us who he is. He came to take us back to the Father. It's called reconciliation. It's the way Paul talks about it, Colossians 1.20. The reconciliation of all things. You, me, the world, the environment, our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our communities, our governments, our stores, everything. Reconciled back to God so that there's not a loss of identity from material poverty, that there's not a loss of identity from spiritual poverty, but all things are brought back to the way they were made. That they are restored that they are reconciled to God, functioning the way they were designed to function. I think that's what poverty is. It's a general malfunctioning of humanity. It's malfunctioning over here. It's like, it's like a disease. A disease gets into our body, and we begin to malfunction. We're meant to be healthy. We're meant to walk. We're meant to run. We're meant to think. We're meant to engage. And when something comes in, it's a general malfunctioning. And the same thing happens over here. A general malfunctioning. We think we can do it on our own. We think we don't need God because we're modern, because we're rational, because we're logical, because of the enlightenment that we can reduce things to their problem and fix them. We can explain everything. It's not a miracle. It's science. God didn't heal that person. Penicillin did. 
that's where we are. That's our point. Jesus comes into this story, into this chasm between the poor and the rich. He's born into a town called Nazareth. Nazareth is a town on the periphery. Uh, Nathaniel says in the Gospel of John, can anything good come from Nazareth? And the answer is no, <laughs> nothing. Nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. It's a no place kind of town. You don't go there on purpose, you just end up there. You end up there and you never leave because you don't belong anywhere else. It's on the outskirts. Jesus is born into the chasm. He's born into the poverty. Generally, I used to think of the Easter story as the greatest sacrifice that Christ made for us, and I agree. I agree with that still. The trial, the way of sorrows, the Golgotha, the cross, the nails, him crying out, God, why are you forsaking me? The sacrifice of Christ that restores us back to him. But this story in Philippians, the way Paul puts it, I wonder if this is a sacrifice that compares to Easter. The sacrifice of Jesus being God. In the beginning, always, the Spirit of God coming in, dwelling amongst us in the chasm, on the periphery. God wrapped up in flesh. The sacrifice of Christmas. Jesus came in to the periphery. He came in to the physically poor world. He came into a spiritually poor world. And he offered himself. And I think this is the heart of the tradition. This is the heart of the season. This is the heart of the story. God became human and he adopted our poverty. He adopted my poverty. He adopted your poverty. He adopted the poverty over here. He adopted the poverty over here. And that's why we celebrate. That's why I want to celebrate. When I became a Christian when I was 19, my celebration changed one degree. I always got together with family, did the food, did the presents, did everything. And when I became 19, I did one extra thing that week. I went to church on Christmas Eve. And they gave me a candle with a cup. Then I burned myself. It's kind of clumsy. We lit it on fire, we held it up, we sang a holy night, and we went home, and Christmas felt exactly the same the next day, as it always had. That was my recognition, that was my celebration, that was my thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice, for the coming down, for being born into all this poverty, for adopting my poverty. Here's a candle. Happy birthday. Can I go home now? I already went to church this week. It's Wednesday night. That was it. That's, that's how my tradition was modified. That's how my celebration was modified. Jesus was born into our poverty. He's born into the periphery, adopted our poverty. Now here's, here's the thing about Christmas, you guys. I absolutely love it. I love it. I grew up in Colorado, and we'd sing the whole White Christmas song and actually have a shot at getting a White Christmas. It was awesome. I've had, like, it's fantastic. I know. I love Christmas morning. I love waking up, putting on coffee, and knowing I'm going to get to spend the next 20 hours with my family. We're going to spend all day together. I love that. I love giving things to my brothers, to my mom, to my dad that, that they that they love, that they're going to use, that they need, that they have a desire for. I love that. I love the whole thing. And I, I don't want you to walk out of here going, "Wow, Christmas is the most evil thing ever." And I never want to. I never want to get within 100 miles of it. Absolutely, absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. Christmas, there's a lot of good things going on this time of year. The joy, the peace, the charity, the giving, all of that stuff. It's, there's a lot of good things going on here. And I hope you don't walk out of here and make, you know, just go down to Walmart and start picketing. There's Antioch over at Walmart picketing. Uh, picking that's not at all, that's not at all what I want to say. But here's the thing. This, this war on Christmas, have you guys heard that term? There's a, literally a war on Christmas, if you guys didn't know that, going on around the world, um, going on in band, going on in our, in our country. And the war on Christmas goes something like this. Um, a bunch of people get together, pool a lot of money, buy a humongous billboard. And on the billboard is a sign that says, keep Christ in Christmas. Or it says, Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, the war on Christmas looks like standing in line at Walmart and the... <laughs> The, the checkout lady, the poor checkout lady who's just trying to make money, um, you know, to keep her family alive, can't say Merry Christmas, but she can say Happy Holidays. And we're not okay with that. We're not okay with Happy Holidays because this is Christmas. we got to say Merry Christmas. And I'm wondering, what does it matter? What does it matter if we're standing in line at Walmart, $400 worth of stuff in our cart? What does it matter if she says Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas? We have this idea, the war so to speak, that the media is called. There's this center over here. The center of power where everything happens. It's absolutely connected to the wealth, to the money, to the influence, to the political power, to the prestige, all of that. There's a center of power and it goes out and it goes out and it goes out and it goes out and it goes out, and it goes out, all the way over into this world. And out here on the edge is the periphery. Way over there, the center of power. Way over there where laws are made, where public policy is determined. Way over there where culture is determined, where the, where the schools are, the universities are, where, where Capitol Hill is. Way over there in the center of power, all that stuff is going on. And way out here on the periphery, where we've been marginalized, we've been pushed out to the edge because we don't fit, because we don't, we, we don't have anything to offer, because we have no education or we're sick or we're lame. We just, we just don't know how to speak the language of power because this is the world that we were born into. And the world that Jesus spent his life in was not there. It was not the center of power. It was not in Rome. It was not with Caesar. It was not in Jerusalem. It was not with Herod. It was here. In Nazareth, in Galilee, in Judah, walking with his disciples, calling people that should not be called to do anything great. Tax collectors and zealots and fishermen. Calling the guys that didn't fit over there. Calling guys that might have tried but ended up being pushed out to here just working a normal job, trying to stay alive, trying to exist, trying to survive. And Jesus comes here. In this war on Christmas, I think we get focused over here. We get focused on the power. We get focused on the thing. We say, we got to maintain what we've got. We've got to keep the tradition alive. We've got to fight the war. We've got to get the billboards. We've got to say the sayings. We've got to protest the right stores that only say happy holidays and not Merry Christmas. We've got to get a, a bunch of people together. We've got to get a nativity scene on every corner in Bend, Oregon. 
And I'm wondering if Jesus ran into this church this morning, if he kicked open the doors and ran down and came up on the stage, would he say, guys, it's Christmas and what we need is nativity scenes. Lots and lots and lots of nativity scenes. That's how the world is going to know. That's how Bend is going to know that you love me. That's how they're going to know that you're celebrating me. Plastic statues. We get focused on this. We got to keep what we've got. The tradition is about Jesus. Keep Christ in Christmas. And we lose sight, you guys. I lose sight of that world. I get, I get focused here. It's a war. It's a war. And the stakes are... What are the stakes? We're fighting the wrong war. We're fighting the wrong war because we lose sight of this. We're focused here. Jesus says, this is my world. This is what I was born into. This is why I came. Rich people know they're rich. Healthy people know they're healthy. Poor people. Sick people, now they know they need a doctor. They know that they need something that's missing. They have room for me in their heart. Over here, you don't. Over here, it's power games. Over here, your identity is wrapped up in what you do. You've commodified your environment. You've commodified yourself. Say, if I put this on the table, people will accept me because I have it. And I will accept people based on what they do. And that leaves no room for this world. That leaves no room for the periphery. Because when we commodify people in the periphery, what do we determine? They're worthless. And we give them those labels. Poor, or lazy. You don't, you, don't, you don't contribute. I think at the heart of Christmas, the heart of our celebration is to celebrate Jesus. Right? Can we agree on that? That's the point of this whole thing. That's why we do hymns, that's why we do candles, that's why we do Christmas Eve, that's why we do trees, that's why we do lights. That's why when our roof that's angled at this covered in ice, that's why we'll go climb around on it and staple lights to our, our house. That's why. It's Jesus. We're celebrating Jesus. And the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in was not a kingdom of this world. It was not a kingdom that is built on the ground and stretches up into the sky. It's not a kingdom of power. It's not a kingdom that anybody in power would look at and marvel at and envy and want to have. He says, no, my kingdom is here. My kingdom is built down into the hearts of men. It's not a kingdom over there that you would think. So don't fight that fight. Don't wage that war. Figure out where to be in between. Figure out how to live in a world that says to be valued. That to have an identity, you've got to be a part of the kingdom that is built up. Jesus says, no, 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 no. My kingdom is built down into you. It's about your heart. It's about where you stand. I've got this friend of mine. His name's Anthony. We had dinner last week. It's like one of those awesome three-hour long dinners. And they kick us out of the restaurant kind of dinner that comes along once every few years. It's a fantastic conversation. And right in the middle of the conversation, he looked at me and he smiled. He said, you know what, Matt, I think God only has one question for us. Please, like me. He said, I think the one question God has for us is, do you love what I love? 
do love what I love? It's a good question, and I've been thinking about that question. Do you love what I love? Do you love who I love? Do you love how I love? Or are there other things in the way? Are there other things in the way? Mark 7, Jesus is dealing with a couple guys who are fairly religious. A couple guys who have a few things that they love a little more than what God loves. A thing called tradition. Mark 7, him and his disciples come in, and they come from the marketplace. And when you come from the marketplace in Jewish culture, you have to wash your hands before you eat. Um, and it's not the same reason why we wash our hands because we're terrified of swine flu. Um, and, you know, it's just culturally gross to not wash your hands before you eat or you come out of the bathroom. Um, but there, it, there, there was that, obviously. But there was this other thing, this religious thing that said if you don't wash your hands before you eat, you defile yourself. You're unholy before God. You have to be clean. And here's Jesus coming in from the periphery his periphery disciples coming into a place that has some power. The heart of the Jewish culture, the rabbis, the teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they're looking at that. They're saying, obviously this guy is the Messiah. Obviously he's not in tune with who God is. But if he was, he would know this simple commandment. So they ask him that, and Jesus laughs at him. <laughs> Goes back to Isaiah. He says, you know what? Isaiah was talking about you guys, and he said, in vain they will worship me. In vain they will worship me. And they will take a tradition, and they will put it over the command of God. That's what he accused them. You take a tradition of the elders. That's what the whole cleansing ceremony was. Tradition of the elders. And they took that tradition... And they made it more important, more significant than the commandments of God. They put it here. Jesus says, now you're lording over people something that is not even from God. And you are making it a salvation issue. You are making it a faith issue. You're making it a lordship issue. He says, that is bad news. How do you take a tradition and make it more important than a command? Um, it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of man. And he says this at the very end of it, the beginning of Mark 7. You have a fine way of rejecting God in order to establish your own traditions. <laughs> you have a fine way of rejecting God in order to establish your own traditions. Of course, they looked at him like, wait, Jesus, what are you talking about? Because let me tell you what I'm saying. You guys have this thing. It's called Corbin. Corbin means a gift for God. The fifth commandment of Moses is to honor your father and your mother. This is what Jesus is telling you. You guys know that commandment. You have it memorized. You've had it memorized for a long time. But when your parents come to you, when you have a chance to honor them, you know what you say? You say, sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. I gave all of my money to God. I gave it all. I went above and beyond what God asked. I took the commandment and I added my own righteousness to it. I added my own piousness to it because I'm that good. I'm that faithful. He says, how in the world do you think that taking something God gave you, command, and ignoring it in light of your own tradition, how is that going to give him honor? How is that going to glorify God in any way? And here's the kicker. This is the really sick part. 
They were doing it in God's name. Disregard God's commands in God's name in favor of our tradition. We disregard God's command in His name for our tradition. It's Christmas. It's a celebration of Jesus. It's Jesus' birthday. And the question, do you love what I love? Matthew 25. The most used, overstated story in the New Testament. Jesus is talking about the end. He says at the end it's going to come down to two groups. It's going to be those that love me and those that don't love me. And you know how I'm going to know the difference? I'm going to know the difference if you love what I love, if you love who I love. And the disciples are, are dying to know, okay, how do we love you? Because I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly how to do it. If you love people of the periphery, if you love the people without, if you love the people with marred identity, if you love the people who've been kicked to the curb, that is your love for me. That is how I will know. That is how I will recognize you when you come and stand before me. It's going to have little to do with the kingdom of this world. It's going to have little to do with power plays. It's going to have little to do with how we commodified and how much money we made. It's going to have little to do with that. It's going to have everything to do with our heart. Do we love what God loves? Do we honor what God honors? Do we celebrate what God celebrates? Do we line up our heart? Do we, do we die for our hearts to beat in rhythm with God's heart? Do you love what I love? Jesus came, born into the periphery, away from power and quiet night, in a borrowed manger. He never once raised money. He never once got an army together. He never once had anybody arrested. He never had once anybody killed. He never built a giant building. He never went to Rome to gain momentum for his movement. None of that. He went to the periphery. He said, this is where my kingdom is. If you want to know me, if you want to know my kingdom, this is how it is unfolding into our world. Tradition means inherited, established, customary pattern of thought. Inherited, established, customary pattern of thought. Um, I inherited Christmas from my parents. They inherited it from their parents. They inherited it from their parents. Just like the Pharisees inherited the washing of their hands from their parents, from their parents, and from their parents. Established, customary pattern of thought. Something is the way it is. To be able to see our tradition is hard. Be able to step back from our tradition is hard. And here's what I want to encourage you guys to do this next month as Christmas picks up speed and goes on all around us. Don't reject it. Don't go buy a can of spray paint and make a picket sign today. Don't reject it. I want to, I want to encourage you guys, challenge you guys, whatever the right word for you is, to end up right here in the middle between this reality in this reality, knowing cognitively that poverty exists here and it exists here. It exists at much, at as much downtown Bend as it does in, in Goma in Eastern Congo. It is physical and it is spiritual. And if our tradition is something that we have inherited, a customary pattern of thought, 
to be able to see it, we have to find a place where we can get away from it. We can get some perspective, land right in the middle and say, okay, what is good? What is worshipful about this tradition and what is not? What honors God and what does not? Do I go along with it because it's how culture does it? How do I, how do I keep mind of this? How do I recognize that there's poverty in the people sitting next to me this morning, that there's poverty down the street, that there's poverty in my workplace, that there's poverty around the world, that there's suffering, that there's injustice? How do I celebrate Christ in a way? How do I honor him in a way? How do I form a new tradition that says it's about him and it's about his glory and it's about his honor that has little to do with me and everything to do with him? And here's the deal, you guys. I know you're squirming. I know you're good people. I know you are. I know you're trying to love your family. I know you're trying to give your kids everything they deserve, give them a leg up. And I, I, I can't tell you to go out and never celebrate Christmas. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying figure out how to land somewhere in the middle and discern, ask the questions, determine for yourself. And that is maybe when we get to commit a little bit of sedition. When we identify the authority of the tradition. When we identify the ownership of the tradition that we celebrate, is it God, is it us, is it a culture, is it just simply something we have inherited and never looked at, that we've never challenged, that we've never questioned? And maybe when that happens, we'll end up in a spot in the middle where we can say, you know what, I'm going to commit a little bit of sedition here. I'm not going to go along with that. I'm going to challenge the authority on that. That's what sedition means. It means literally to separate. To separate to separate from the tradition, to separate from the thing that you inherited, to create a new thing, to reform it, to take it back to what it should be. It's redux. To ask the questions, to wrestle, to find the answers. Um, there's all kinds of practical things that you can do that I don't have time for, so I just ran out of time 13 minutes ago. Um, Come talk to me if you want practical ideas. We put together an Antioch Christmas catalog, which is amazing. It's a catalog that you're going to get on the way out here, and it's not a, it's not a, a, a free pass on, on tithing and offering for the next month. It's about giving. It's about going above and beyond. Over 20 different things that you can ask for, that you can give, that have to do with ministries working in the periphery, working in the poverty literally around the world, and literally working in the poverty of them. There's over 20 things in there you're going to get one when you walk out today. Um, just a couple things really quick. Um, literally, and I mean this, I'm not being facetious. Literally, in the next three weeks, go to the person that lives next door to you, literally next door to you, and knock on their door. And see if they want to come over for Christmas dinner. Don't even ask if they're doing anything. Just knock on the door and say, hey, Christmas dinner, come on over. And if they have something else planned, great. How many of us live so anonymously in our own neighborhoods. Um, that's a challenge for me. Literally go next door and see if somebody wants to celebrate you. Open up your home. Um, look through the Christmas catalog. Um, make something. Make something meaningful. And here's one of my favorite things as a gift. Give, give a word. Give a word as a gift. You can't put a word on a shelf. Words don't get dusty. Words internalize it take them inside and they move and they make a difference. Tell somebody something that's meaningful. Give something that creates relational capacity. 
I'll just go to Walmart and buy something plastic and it's easy. Think. Who's around you? Who's in your world? Who do you love? Who loves you? How can you create space to be together in a way that is significant, in a way that is meaningful? So end up here. This reality, this reality, a new tradition. A new tradition that honors Christ, that celebrates him the way he said he would want to be celebrated. If you want to give a gift that honors me, Jesus says, give it here. Um, we're going to play a clip from a film that I wrote the script to and Beth Fisher put together. We made it for World Relief and World Relief Next because those are two organizations that work over here in this periphery. This could easily be a movie about your life. This could easily be about where you go to work. This could easily be about downtown Bend because poverty is not just here. Poverty is not just here. Um, so we put this together challenge people to think about this tradition, to see how as the church we have the opportunity to represent Christ in a meaningful way. So that maybe next year on the news, the war on Christmas is not a bunch of Christians picketing at Walmart, but the report on the news is, is, is a reporter who's baffled, saying, yeah, uh, we don't know what's going on, but there's all these people running around town giving anonymous gifts. There's all these people running around town taking people into their homes. We, we don't know how to explain it. We don't know what's going on. There used to be this, this crazy huge war on Christmas, but now um, there's just all this stuff that's unexplainable. People are literally, literally giving their lives away for the benefit of other people. It's going to be a good Christmas. And I'm excited to celebrate it with you guys. Thanks. I miss, like...